let's not abandon our streets or choose between safety and equal justice. Let's come together and protect our communities, restore trust, and hold law enforcement accountable. That's why the Justice Department has required body cameras, banned choke calls, and restricted no-knocks warrants for its officers. President Biden's first State of the Union touched on a laundry list of issues. Police reform was one of them, particularly no-knock warrants. No-knock warrants allow officers to enter a private residence unannounced, sometimes as loudly as possible. This week, Democratic Representative Ilan Omar introduced legislation that would ban them at the federal level. The renewed attention came after 22-year-old Amir Locke was killed during a police raid in Minneapolis last month. The SWAT officer who shot him was serving a no-knock warrant. That warrant allowed law enforcement to enter the apartment without giving notice of their presence. Locke, a black man, was not a suspect in the investigation investigation that led to the raid. No-knock warrants have been banned in four states, a list that does not include Minnesota. But city leaders in Minneapolis have long called for no-knock warrants to be restricted, and its mayor issued a moratorium on them last month. So what's the future of no-knock warrants, and why does the controversial practice persist? We'll take a nationwide look at no-knock warrants, but first, we start in Amir Locke's home state of Minnesota. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from St. Paul is Walker Orenstein. He's a reporter covering state government for MinPost. That's a newsroom in Minnesota. Walker, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Jamiles Lardy. He's a staff writer covering the criminal justice system for the Marshall Project. Jamiles, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. So, Walker, let's start with the police raid that led to Amir Locke's death. What can you tell us about that night? Yeah, so the raid was connected to a homicide in the city of St. Paul. So uh, police there were uh, conducting an investigation. Um, there was a 17-year-old who um, has been charged now with uh, fatally shooting somebody um, over, from what we can tell, a, a, an apparent drug deal. Um, and so they were looking for both evidence and they were looking for potentially a suspect here. Um, and he was connected to an apartment building in Minneapolis. And so police in St. Paul asked for help uh, from Minneapolis to go over and try and find both evidence and potentially if he was there, 
um, arrest the suspect. And so that's sort of the, the timeline of what led up to the raid as they were looking for um, evidence. And, and it's worth noting that St. Paul police have said that they don't use no-knock search warrants, and but they do defer to other departments um, when they're leading sort of a raid sort of situation. And so in this case, Minneapolis, since the apartment building was in Minneapolis, they were leading the situation. And that's why they were the ones who requested and asked for a no-knock search warrant. And walk us through the events of that night. Yeah. So police, um, if you watch the video, um, what they do is they approach the door. They've gotten, um, you know, entry ability. They've got a key. Um, and they open the door and they sort of announce their presence as they're crossing the threshold. And this is sort of in line with a, a new policy from the mayor um, where police can, uh, you know, not knock and wait, but sort of reach the door and announce themselves prior to crossing the threshold of the door or sort of as they cross the threshold of the door. Um, and so they rush into the apartment. There's a lot of noises. You know, they're announcing police search warrant, but there's many people doing it. Um, and really quickly, they find Amir Locks uh, sleeping on the couch and they, they kick the couch and Amir Locks sort of stirs and wakes up. He's kind of um, rising underneath a blanket. He was not facing the officers at the time. Um, and in his hand, he's got a gun. And police have said that they felt like he was pointing it at them. Of course, the family has said they feel like he was not. He was pointing it elsewhere and that the way he was holding the gun was sort of not with a finger on the trigger. Um, and, you know, good gun discipline in their view. Um, and this was all, you know, within seconds of this happening. And so police at that point um, shot and killed um, Amir Locke. And it's my understanding that Amir Locke's family has also said he was a legal gun owner. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, the family of Amir Locke has made a plea to end no-knock warrants as well. Here's Amir's mother, Karen Wells. I am going to be the voice of all the mothers yes. in the Twin Cities yes. who did not have a voice, yes. who also went through these no-knock warrants, yes. and the media and nobody reported about it. Yes. So guess what? Y'all didn't know who was underneath them covers, but y'all know now. His name was Amir Bakari Locke. Yes. He loved the youth, yes. wanted to save the youth, yes. and we're going to save the rest of the youth. Jamiles, how is a no-knock warrant different from other types of search warrants? Yeah, so no-knock warrants are when police officers executing a search enter a home by force suddenly, obviously without announcing themselves, to catch potential suspects off guard. And while courts have generally ruled that officers need to announce their presence before entering a private home, there's this one broad exception uh, that's called exigent circumstances. And so the most common exigent circumstance police cite is their belief that suspects are inside destroying evidence while police are outside announcing themselves. Um, judges also uh, will accept the premise that police officers need no-knock warrants to disorient suspects who could otherwise use the announced time to arm themselves and confront police officers violently. Um, most of the specific rules here are, are driven by case law, and so they vary from state to state. Um, but it is really important to note that in non-no-knock warrants, the announcement period can be as short as five seconds, some courts have ruled. Um, so you can have de facto no-knock warrants as well, even in the absence of a proper uh, no-knock warrant. And I, I, I bring that up because I think it's an important distinction to keep in mind anytime we're discussing these, um, that you know, they fall into a broader sphere of police rage raids, which are all, in a sense, provocative acts that necessarily clash with our 
constitutional expectation to be secure in our homes and to be free to defend those homes from uh, perceived intruders. Well, after Amir Locke was killed, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry announced a moratorium on no-knock warrants. There is always an exception for extremely dangerous circumstances where there may be loss of life or, or imminent harm. Uh, and you do not need a warrant in order for an officer uh, to attend to a circumstance in those instances. Uh, and so we just wanted to make the further clarification in our policy that, again, there will neither be the issuance nor the execution of no-knock warrants uh, through the moratorium. Uh, that moratorium will be in place uh, until we have a policy set up, and we hope that that policy will be set up in weeks, not months. Now, Walker, Fry and the city of Minneapolis announced restrictions on no-knock warrants in November of 2020, but didn't go so far as to ban them. Did those restrictions limit the number of no-knock warrants that were issued? Up until that new policy, was, which was the first time Minneapolis had ever had an official policy governing no-knock warrants, um, Minneapolis police said that they were executing an average of about 139 no-knock search warrants every year. Um, after that policy change, you know, we asked about you know, six, seven months in, you know, what's kind of the status of this? And what Minneapolis police sent us back was that they had applied for 90 no-knock search warrants um, in that time period. So that was between November of 2020 and about August of 2021, late August of 2021. And so it appears that Minneapolis police were roughly on pace. And you know, they've released some numbers since then that show that they were sort of slightly down, um, but it wasn't a massive reduction in the number of no-knock search warrants that were being applied for. And it's worth noting that this is the 90 number we had was applied for and not necessarily carried out. So that's sort of a caveat there. But like I said, the later data sort of bears out that um, there wasn't a massive reduction in the number of no-knock search warrants executed. Walker, Minneapolis has been under review by the state's Department of Human Rights and the Department of Justice since uh, the 2020 murder of George Floyd. How has limiting no-knock warrants fit into other police reform measures in Minneapolis? Yeah, so uh, Mayor Jacob Fry here has campaigned on a number of police reforms um, over the last few years. One, for instance, is prohibiting officers from shooting at moving vehicles. Um, And so he's sort of made a concerted effort in his view to uh, reform the police. And this no-knock warrants policy was one of his flagship policies. Um, It's worth noting that uh, Minneapolis voters uh, rejected a ballot measure last year to replace the Minneapolis Police Department with the Department of Public Safety and remove a minimum standard for officers and it would have or a minimum standard for the number of officers the police department could have and it would have granted the city council more power so the mayor retains sort of complete power over the police at this point and he does have other efforts underway he's got sort of a work group looking at potential um, new police reform so this but this no-knock warrant policy was one of his major ones that he campaigned on where do things go from here in the amir lock case in, in the amir lock case you know, I think most of the debate um, around no-knock warrants at the state level will continue. Um, Republicans have been uh, hesitant to make a full ban on no-knock warrants, and even some Democrats have have done that as well. Um, on the local level, I know uh, Mayor Fry is working with activist Ray McKesson and a criminal justice expert to sort of review their policy as they move on from this moratorium um, on no-knock warrants and figure out what their status will be going forward. So. Right now, that's sort of their main focus is is looking at no-knock search warrant reform.
That's Walker Orenstein. He's a reporter at MinPost. Walker, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. We're going to add another voice to the conversation. Thor Ills is a former police officer and the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. That's a nonprofit that provides training and educational material to police and SWAT teams. Thor, welcome to the program. Thank you. We also want to hear from you. What questions do you have about no-knock warrants? Tweet us at 1A or send us an email at 1A at WAMU.org. Here's a message we got from Paul in Georgia. Personally, without adequate information or support for your visit, I don't think it should ever be acceptable. Uh, The results have been disastrous, uh, invading unknown, uh, innocent uh, people when you don't have the appropriate data. It's just unacceptable. I think it should be completely abolished because uh, if you have the right information, then you have a warrant. And we also got this tweet that says, no-knock warrants are just dangerous in general. The kid was asleep, and even if police announce their presence, you have to understand how disoriented you are while being awakened like that. It's unsafe on both ends. Thor, why do police use no-knock warrants as opposed to conventional search warrants? Well, uh, Jamiles, I think, touched on a few of them. I mean, the primary uh, purpose of the no-knock was originally created as a means of preventing the destruction of evidence and to enhance the safety of the officers and or occupants uh, through the ability to close time and distance to overcome any potential resistance. But one thing I will uh, point out, and I think it's really important to note, Jamiles mentioned this, and, and I hate to have to correct them on this, but... A no-knock warrant in of itself does not necessitate entry. It simply is a judicial exception to the knock-and-announce constitutional requirement. So there are teams throughout the country that are using the no-knock provision uh, without entering. And so that in of itself can be a safety tool or means uh, on behalf of the officers. Wait, I, I don't quite understand what, what you mean. So you're saying they, they have permission to enter the residence without knocking, but they don't actually use that Correct. permission? Correct. So they don't do the knock and announce. So in a traditional knock and announce warrant, and, and Jamal's mentioned this, uh, that under a knock and announcement, there's a knock and announce, and then the requirement is you wait a reasonable period of time before you can do any breach and then crossing of the threshold. With a no-knock exception, an agency can serve the warrant without knocking and announcing and also cross the threshold. But what many teams are using is they're not engaging in the knock and announce component, but they're also not crossing the threshold and making entry into either the apartment, the house, the structure, wherever they may be. Uh, And so it's the means of how that warrant is served. It's the devils in the details is what happens following the breach that usually then uh, is the telltale sign of what the outcome is going to be. Thor, when we focus in on the police safety question, is there consensus in law enforcement about whether no-knock warrants should be fully banned? I don't think there's a consensus on that, no. As I mentioned, I think there are many agencies that have been engaging in the utilization of no-knock warrants for many, many years and have been successful in doing that. Having said that, I think the majority of law enforcement agencies have steered away from the utilization of no-knock warrants for many of the reasons that Jamal's just very well articulated. 
we do recognize that there are other means of improving the safety for both occupants as well as law enforcement um, in accomplishing the uh, service of the warrant. What are some of those alternatives? Well, so uh, some of the terminology we use is what we call a takedown away. So you uh, mentioned this earlier, there's surveillance that's conducted. Uh, You wait for the individual to leave the structure, is in an open air environment, walk into the market to get a gallon of milk or something, and you arrest them, you know, with nobody else around uh, to the best of your ability. You know, keeping in mind that we only ever control 50% of the equation when we interact with folks. Um, others are what we call a contain and call out. So it's simply uh, you, you surround the place, you make a phone call, you make a loudspeaker announcements, something of that nature, and uh, let the people know that you have a, a warrant and they need to, to come out and to obey the lawful commands of law enforcement. Um, breach and hold, which is what I mentioned. Some agencies are, are using the no-knock where they breach, but then they hold. There is no crossing of the threshold. There is no entry uh, that, again, compresses time and distance between the suspects and officers. So, you know, they're not always rushing in. I think there is a consensus. And one of the things that is not very well differentiated uh, with the public with regard to no-knocks is the, the, the assumption is that a no-knock is always associated with dynamic entry, which is what Jamiles has been referring to, this rapid, quick movement, insertion of the SWAT team into the location. Universally within the United States now, SWAT teams would readily acknowledge that that is not and is no longer a good and accepted tactic. That's Thor Ills. He's a former police officer and the executive director of the National Tactical Officers Association. That's a nonprofit that provides training and educational material to police and SWAT teams. Thor, thanks for speaking with us. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to our conversation on no-knock warrants, and let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Josh Parker is a senior staff attorney at The Policing Project from the NYU School of Law. Josh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So we got this email from one listener who writes, In 2009, my brother, who was wanted for a warrant, his wife, two kids, and myself were at his house when four unmarked cars pulled up to the house. Multiple football player-looking white guys with vests, assault rifles, and shotguns hopped out of the car and placed all of us under arrest, leaving the children, one of which was an infant, alone in the house. It was the middle of summer and very hot. We were both placed in a single squad car cuffed. The officer then turned on the heat in the squad car. 
car. We were left in the squad car with the heat on for almost an hour. My brother by that time was suffering from a pretty serious panic attack. His loud and agonizing screams were enough to draw out the neighbors. It was only then that we were left out, we were let out of the squad car. Josh, as someone who works on cases of police misconduct, how do no-knock warrants fit into the broader conversation of overall police reform? Right. We see when no-knock warrants are executed far too often, you're seeing tragic consequences like those that your caller unfortunately suffered. And what I'd kind of like to point out is that there are civil legal remedies that are available in theory for this sort of egregious misconduct. But as Jamiles mentioned, in most cases, they are difficult, if not impossible, to obtain. And so that's why legislation setting forth clear rules on the front end are so important. There are clear statewide rules and clear statewide consequences for violating those rules. Such a regime would significantly deter officers from such flagrant violations of people's rights in the first place and would hold officers who do so nonetheless accountable. We got this email from Lindsay who says, I can't help but feel that greater gun control would enable better policing. I know politicians get spooked anytime gun control is mentioned, but if officers could approach people in their community knowing that they are most likely not facing an armed person, then they establish a trust that cannot exist in a society where people are likely to be armed. Jim Miles, where does this issue of no-knock warrants intersect with, with other issues, as Lindsay says, like gun control? Yeah, I, I think that that um, that observation is exactly right. And I, I, I believe that the preponderance of guns in American society and culture um, is is kind of the underlying reality that structures everything we talk about in American policing. Right. All of the changes that uh, that people want to make uh, kind of ultimately wind up bumping up against the fact that, you know, you'll hear people say, well, why can't we have police like they have in uh, the United Kingdom? You know, most most of their police officers don't carry guns. Why can't we have that? And the answer you get from from law enforcement in the U.S. is, well, there's, you know, roughly one gun for every uh, American citizen. Um, And so the the level of risk from from guns is so much higher, um, you know, that it's that it's not prudent or fair to expect officers to patrol uh, without having something they can protect themselves with. Um, so, yeah, I, I think gun control is, um, I, I, mean, I, I think that that observation is correct. If we had less guns on the streets, um, their police would certainly have less reasons and judges would have less reason to ask for and judges would have less reasons to grant um, no knock or dynamic entry um, or rapid knock and announce uh, warrants. I want to play this message we got from Arlie in North Carolina. It's, I find it rather interesting that we've never, ever seen a, in one of these incidences of someone uh, being killed as a result of these things in other, anything other than black or brown neighborhoods. Now, I'm, I'm bright enough to know that there are crimes committed everywhere, but there seems to be the, the, the uh, only take place in, in those particular neighborhoods. Now, an American Civil Liberties Union study from 2014 found that 42 percent of those subjected to SWAT search warrant raids were black and 12 percent were Hispanic. And a report by The New York Times uh, from 2017 found that 81 civilian deaths from SWAT raids, half were members of racial minority groups. Jamiles, where does racial justice intersect with this conversation? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think it's important to 
to note that you know a that that SWAT raids and no knock raids happen um, to people of of all races and backgrounds. Um, there's a number of high profile cases that have um, that have occurred uh, to to white people. Um, there was a high profile case in uh, Texas, one of the original uh, cases that. Um, sort of got civil, civil libertarians talking about uh, this question back in the, I want to say the 19, uh, late 1970s or 1980s was in Washington state, um, was also a white guy. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that policing broadly in America um, is, it, the negative impacts of policing are broadly felt uh, disproportionately by black Americans. And so that is true um, of no-knock raids, of SWAT teams, of, uh, you know, poor training. I mean, kind of any, any issue that we want to talk about, um, uh, about the harms that policing can have, they, ha- they, they disproportionately impact Black Americans. Josh, you, you mentioned the difficulty in uh, seeking redress when people are, have suffered harm to themselves, their homes, or their families as a result of no-knock warrants. What legal options do people have? So the existing legal legal options are bringing civil lawsuits, um, but there are, you know, obstacles to recovering like qualified immunity um, and other obstacles are seeking to hold officers accountable by, you know, having them decertified from stripping them of their badge. Um, But that's often very difficult in states. So as a result, there's a desperate need for state and municipal legislation regulating use of no-knock warrants, similar practices, and use of force more generally. In most states, there's an almost total absence of regulation in the area. And something I'd like to emphasize is that legislative reform should be comprehensive, not piecemeal. States should not just be legislating in response to the most recent tragedy. At least 17 states banned chokeholds following George Floyd's murder. That was a piecemeal reform, but that hasn't prevented police from engaging in other permitted practices that lead to disastrous consequences. At the very least, states should also consider regulating knock and announce with dynamic entry, as Jamiles and Thor discussed earlier. Um, But states need to go further and pass comprehensive laws on subjects like use of force, data collection, and officer discipline and decertification all of which are covered by our model statutes that can be found on the Policing Project's website. States like Illinois and Massachusetts passed comprehensive use of force and officer decertification laws following George Floyd's murder. And I'd like to emphasize if Minnesota had similar laws in place, these tragedies may well have been avoided. Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd, had at least 18 prior complaints against him. And Mark Hanneman, who shot Locke, had four complaints, one of which was still open when he shot Locke. If they had laws like Illinois and Massachusetts in place, they could have been suspended or decertified for their prior misconduct. The last point I'd like to make is comprehensive statutes like this don't just benefit members of the public. They benefit officers by giving them clear guidance on what's permitted and what's not and what the consequences are for running afoul of that guidance. When you look at what's happening at the federal, state, and municipal levels, Josh, where do you see the most movement happening right now? Following George Floyd's murder, um, we saw a lot of movement on use of force. Um, we saw we saw, and we're still seeing a lot of movement on officer discipline and decertification. This is a, a, this is not commonly known. 
But just like lawyers are members of a state bar, are members of a state bar and they could be disbarred, um, police officers in 47 of the 50 states are um, certified by what's often called the Peace Officer Standards and Trainings Board, and they can be decertified statewide if they engage in serious misconduct. So we're seeing a bunch of states passing reforms in that area. Um, another area that we're, where we're seeing um, a lot of work is data collection and transparency, requiring that data be collected on things like use of force, on stop data, on you know use of SWAT teams, um, so we can understand the extent of the problem um, to inform future regulation. And Jamiles, when it comes to political movement, are you seeing more happening at the federal level, the state level, or at the municipal level? Well, we're seeing much more happen at the at the state level than the federal level, uh, for sure, because there's almost nothing has happened at the federal level. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, stalled in Congress. That was, uh, to Josh's point, uh, comprehensive um, in the sense that it addressed multiple layers of, of policing, um, including some of, the, some of these questions. Uh, what we have seen is the Biden administration release some executive orders that were aimed at addressing how federal law enforcement agents, uh, agencies and federal law enf- enforcement officers uh, conduct themselves. So, so there have been federal, well, let's not call them bans, federal restrictions um, on the use of uh, uh, ch- both chokeholds and uh, no-knock uh, warrants at the federal level. So that would include you know, uh, FBI agents, ATF. Um, but in terms of using the federal, the power of the federal government to, um, well, let me take a step back to say that we have eight, about 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. Um, and the vast, vast majority of those are state and local, um, and the federal government cannot just tell, uh, local police departments how to police what they ought to do. Uh, so, um, you know, we've seen movement at the state level, at the federal level, um, what is essentially available to the federal government is to incentivize departments to change some of these behaviors. That's Jamal's Lardy. He's a staff writer at the Marshall Project. Also with us, Josh Parker, a senior staff attorney at the Policing Project from the NYU School of Law. Jamal's, Josh, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.